Hey, everybody. You are listening to Smart Guy, Dumb Guy, a podcast. I'm your host and resident filmmaker, musician, uh, bike rider, and dumb guy, Christian Serge. And this is your co-host, author, reverend, and soon-to-be doctor, Johnny Morrison, the smart guy. That's me. It's nice that you included a bike rider in there. Just like an additional random factoid about Christian. Well, I went on a bike ride today down to the beach. It's like two miles. I, I'm spoiled. It's fun to list your hobbies. <laughs> so this is uh, our podcast each week, and now for the next 23 minutes, and I think today potentially longer than that, we're going to have a conversation about culture, current events, and politics from all sides of the intellectual spectrum. Thanks for listening, everyone. This week is really special. I've got two of my most favorite people here that we're going to uh, talk with, Johnny being one of them, and my special guest, or our special guest, uh, is a good friend of mine. He has uh, always been, in my book, both a dumb guy, a smart guy, a crazy one, but he's always pushing the limits, and he's asking <laughs> questions. And now he's released a new five-part docuseries that exposes, and I quote, the largest conspiracy of lies in the history of the world. Big claim. Producer and filmmaker Patrick Lovell. How are you, Patrick? Well, anytime I'm in, I'm in your uh, vicinity, Christian, especially if I can share the dumb guy connotation with you, <laughs> then I, I am, I'm ready to go, man. I mean, Christian, you're the... You're probably one of the most electrifying people I've ever been around in my Stop. life. I, I can't even express to you how happy I am to be uh, joining you and uh, your colleague Jonathan here. And uh, I'm just happy to be here. Thank you for uh, having me. Well, we're happy to have you. Thanks, Patrick. I remember all the stories that you have told me. And I continually retell them like, hey, there's this one guy that I know. <laughs> right on. I watched the first two episodes of your series. Right on. And I don't know who Addie Polk is yet, and I don't want to do any spoilers, but tell us what this docuseries is all about. Well, it's it's about the, what you set up at the very beginning, the largest uh, conspiracy of lies and cover-up in history. You know, when I think about the magnitude of that statement, it's it's pretty amazing to consider that as a reality without, you know, potentially sounding bonkers, right? But trust me, it's the truth. Why is it? Well, because we live in an age of automation, we also have the largest population that we've ever had in history. And if you have a massive criminal enterprise and you have incredible coordination to be able to uh, make that engine run and purr the way it's supposed to, it's a massive, massive, massive conspiracy. You know, I, I always get a little bit really kind of tweaked about the notion of conspiracies. I mean, I think when we hear the idea of conspiracy, we consider people that are crazy, that aren't experts, that don't have access, basically spewing their theories to the universe to try to make sense of something that doesn't make sense. And I think... Now, wait a minute, you're kind of making fun of me now, because I love conspiracy theories. <laughs> and while we can certainly... I mean, we grew up, you know, we're about approximately the same age, Christian, but I remember, you know, I mean, the big thing in the 80s and the 90s, a lot of the times, I mean, we saw the uh, the UFO sort of phenomenon based on Roswell and Area 51 and that sort of thing. And I think people started associating, you know, conspiracy theory with uh, crackpots and everything that that leads to. And then, of course, Oliver Stone's film comes to mind with JFK uh, in the 80s. And, and a lot of people in the mainstream tried to discredit his theories because he did take a lot of... Uh, 
filled in certain blanks to make his mm-hmm. fictional enterprise the way he wanted to to present it. Uh, so it's not a, you know a documentary, but look, I mean, it's simple, guys. Conspiracy is more than two to three people um, mm-hmm. in cahoots just trying to pull off a criminal activity. Whether you got two brothers ganging up on a sister to do something behind mom's back or, you know, some variation. That was a horrible picture that you just painted, by the way. I, you know, I mean, it's just natural that people can follow each other's signals. You know, they can they can read each other's wavelength. Mm-hmm. They, they know, oh, hey, we're in on it or we're not in on it. And, and you can just, it's human nature. I mean, it's just society, mm-hmm. right? So why does it sound crazy for people to hear somebody say declaratively, uh, was something that took us years and years and years to aggregate and years and years and years to um, be able to build the most credible sources that exist. Those on the front lines um, that we you know, found in whistleblowers that are, uh, were part of the C-suites, guys with PhDs, MBAs, masters from Ivy League institutions that saw wrongdoing and wanted to do something about it. And then what happened after that? Or we have many, many people from institutions such as the Department of Justice, very high-level players, third in, in command of uh, um, financial crime investigations and prosecutions for the Department of Justice, same at the FBI, the top guy at the FBI, several of the top people at the Securities and Exchange Commission, attorneys general from the around the United States. So wait a minute. Like Sometimes you get so big that I... I start to just kind of fade a little bit sideways. I kind of realize. <laughs> so what I hear is like we have, we had a, alien conspiracies, and you like those. You were you loved eighties directors, <laughs> but now you you went ahead and you found some of the key players after years and years of of uh, just pushing and pulling of people who were able to or willing to blow the whistle on something really big hmm. throughout. Decades, people saw interesting objects in the sky. They came together. They create these communities. And then, of course, when we had the internet, that went on overdrive, and it creates its own culture. But we associate, the point was, a lot of crackpots with conspiracies. So therefore, you just discount conspiracies, right? And one of the big missing things that didn't make sense to millions and millions of people was the JFK assassination, hmm. right? But then, you know, if you don't have all the facts, people can discredit you, even though once you do get the facts, people can still discredit you um, if they obviously don't want the truth to be told. Mm-hmm. If power is corrupt, do will they allow truthsayers to expose the truth or will they discredit them historically? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Always discredit. This is going to irritate Christian, but it makes me think of there's a there's a French philosopher named Michel Foucault who'd say that power power always wills into being a sort of justifying knowledge. Like the narrative of power has to uphold its own self in order to maintain the continuity of its own existence. And what you talk about in the documentary is challenging that notion. Well, no, it's a beautiful statement, especially because I always, um, in this type of conversation, another French philosopher who was also a legal expert uh, prior to the French Revolution, his name was Frédéric Bastiat. And his, his point was, when a group of men discover plunder as their source mm. of power... They create a legal system to uh, authorize it and a moral mm-hmm. code to glorify it. So mm-hmm. that's what we're talking about. We're, we're talking about absolute power corrupts absolutely. Mm-hmm. The notion of the United States has always been against tyranny. It's the idea to have laws based on the Bill of Rights, of course, and the Constitution and the preamble and everything that 
espouses human rights, dignity against tyranny. That's the whole point of the United States. But what you don't realize behind the scenes is that when we had Reagan, for example, the whole contextualization was to get rid of the New Deal. I don't know what the New Deal is. So the New Deal came after the Great Depression. In the Great Depression, we had 22, 25% unemployment. There was misery in this country that was probably, well, the worst, sure, for that generation. But, I mean, it was, it was up there with, with some of the worst time periods in American history. And what everybody ultimately found out, because there was a gentleman by the name of Ferdinand Pecora, who was assigned by Franklin Delano Roosevelt to do an investigation into Wall Street after the Great Depression. And this guy was a Sicilian immigrant. He was a prosecutor from the southern Manhattan SDNY. And uh, he wasn't an expert in finance, but he was an expert in scams, i.e. Ponzi scams, and how the mob moved money. And so he put all of the CEOs of Wall Street at that time on the stand, and they, they, they had a congressional investigation, but it wasn't like what we see in Congress today. In Congress today, everybody has polarized agenda. So they ask a bunch of nonsense questions that create all sorts of distortion effects and miscommunication and confusion. Why? Because power corrupts absolutely. Mm. They're covering the wa- they're circling the wagons to cover mm. up a truth. They didn't do that during Ferdinand Bacora's time because he's a professional prosecutor. He put the witnesses on the stand. He asked them direct questions based on facts, and he cornered them. And he won. And he proved to the American people what they had been doing, which was almost the exact same thing, which led to, quite frankly, the great financial crisis in 2008, which is what the con deconstructs. Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Deception. (laughs) Deception. You don't know what you don't know. Mm -hmm. And if you live in a system that we have, i.e. the United States is basically dependent upon money and flow of money. And finance is really the core of that. Well, if finance isn't controlled in a a way that you control fire, it's going to burn the house down. You guys uh, both are now on my book, smart guys. Like, Boil this down for us dumb people. It's a street crime. So let's say you're you're out there on on the strand, you're longboarding, and you come across some sort of dude that's selling... I don't know, let's just say fish tacos. And he's selling, you know, a product that you think that smells good, sounds good, it's gonna taste good. You decide to buy a bunch and you know, maybe it's three for one, some sort of special deal. But uh, little do you know that it's laced with acid or something that's gonna kill you. And you eat it and you die, and then he finds you and he somehow collects insurance on your your body, right? Mm. That might be a problem. <laughs> that is a problem. Okay, that makes sense to me. Taco metaphors make sense. Aggregate French philosophers, you two. Christian, you have to we have to we have to have at least a little bit of a conversation about continental philosophy on this podcast. Otherwise it would not be smart guy, dumb guy. <laughs> so true. But anyway, Before, I, I mean, you know, is that the story? The story is that the country is supposed to be a country of laws, guys. Is that mm. your understanding? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that's that's the best case scenario. Yes. Okay, is 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 the law the law, right? Is the law equal? No. I, I think what we learned from your documentary is definitely no. What, why isn't it equal? Well, I think this goes back to some of the things that you were saying even earlier, which is that the law works differently 
for different institutions, different people who hold power within the system. And what is power? Oh, what a great question. Um, I mean, in the United States, I think based upon you talking about how the United States flows on money, then I would say at least at some part, power is money. It's all money. So, so the law serves the money. Now, the question mm. is, was that the intent of the founders? I mm. watched Alexander Hamilton. I think it was. So there you go. <laughs> it was his wife who did all the good stuff. He set the banks up. Jeffersonian uh, idealism in, in Hamilton Central Bank. So, yeah, mm. you, you make a great point. But that's not what we're taught early on. We're taught no that we're all equal, that the law yeah. is equal, and that we have this sort of like, you know, fabulous, uh, idealistic sort of land where, you know, anybody can go as far as they want based on their talent. That's exactly so. right. Hey, Patrick, that, that makes me think of a question I wanted to ask you, which is uh, some of the things you just named make me think of some of the story that you tell through the documentary. And I wonder if you would talk a little bit about what got you into the project to begin with, because that feels a bit more personal to you. Well, Chris and I were working together at the time. So get a load of this, right? So I'm a senior uh, producer at this company called Lensworks in Salt Lake City. And Eric is uh, one of the top editors there. And we're producing a television show called Home Team. Now it's a syndicated television show. And I get hired by the executive producer, this cat named Dan Devenham. He invited me. I was working for another television station at the time, and he knew me through the Sundance Film Festival. And uh, he made me a really great offer uh, at the time. It was uh, a very secure um, income, good income, and the opportunity to work with a lot of great guys to be a senior producer, to put a show together, to give away houses to what we call deserving people around the country. And I thought it was great. And I bought it hook, line, and sinker. And I didn't ask a whole lot of questions because I was like, that's ah, a great opportunity. It sounds like fun. And I wanted to elevate my game. And I did because I got to work with guys like Christian. And it was just monumental for me at the time. But what we didn't realize was this show was actually a front for what became this giant criminal enterprise that me and another colleague of ours discovered huh. many huh. years later. So, so we're giving away houses. And the way it works is we're not giving away houses outright. The executive producers and their crazy family were flying around on G5 store shows all the time. Oh, yeah. By all you know, appearances had extremely deep pockets, right? Our host, uh, Troy McLean. Hanging, hanging with Donald Trump on The Apprentice. He was with Mr. Trump on the first episode. He made it to the finals with Trump, of course, which tells you a lot about Troy McClellan. <laughs> and I love Troy, too, at that time. My God, was he fun to hang out. Lensworks and Troy and Dan David Ham, Tom Zajunich. Those guys are great. It's a great family. Loved it. I'll never forget. We're on the Salt Lake City show, of all things. And that's when things started to melt down. Um, Dan Debenham and the show's EP, Stephanie, had this almost come to blow situation right in the middle of a, a television show that we were producing in Salt Lake City. You remember that? Yes, that's when he found out behind the scenes what was happening. Yes, but we don't know that, right? The, yeah, the show was to go in and find someone who really needed uh, a house, kind of, quote, give them a house, do all the upgrades, build it up, and give them payments for a year. And then when they defaulted on the payments, foreclosed, they would buy the house back and sell it for a more big, a bigger profit and take the money. We and didn't know that. We didn't know that. And that's what happened. Yeah, but, but, but think about that. We were giving away houses, in the, in, in, and we just thought we did our job to tell a great story. But behind the scenes, when we gave the house away, they were negotiating behind what kind of mortgage they were giving these guys. They gave them one year free of all of this stuff. But it was a setup, is what I'm telling setup. you. And so the whole economy collapses a year later, and I'm in the midst of that. 
and I'm a job as a mm. producer and I've got a family. I'm in my new house and I go from making really good money and having a very comfortable lifestyle to literally nothing overnight. My whole mm. world just, and I've got this young family and I'm just, you know, I'm trying to be the solid dad. I'm trying to protect my family. I got nowhere to turn. It was the worst experience of my life. It nearly mm. killed me. It crushed my soul. It crushed everything. But here's the thing. Nothing made sense. I'm watching mainstream media. I'm watching cable news echo chambers. I'm listening to people on the radio. I'm reading everything I can get my hands on, and there's no continuity, and I'm listening to government, and nothing is adding up to my experience. Mm-hmm. What I'm actually experiencing in this foreclosure disaster crisis is something completely different than what the whole world is talking about. So I'm thinking to myself, all right, I'm a producer. I can ask questions. I can put shit together. Pardon my language. Mm. I'm going to figure out what's going on. And that put in motion a nine-year journey that got us here. So that's the story. When I watched the first two episodes, I was skeptical. Is this film going to be like censored? Like those doctors on Wall Street? Is it going to be perceived as like that woman who is saying, I'm, you know, this is all a hoax. And I don't know. I guess we'll find out. What's your thoughts on that? Dude, the financial system is really run by six giant too-big-to-fail banks and this whole apparatus of hedge funds, private equity, this money that comes to the Federal Reserve that gets churned out in the in the form of what I like to call as helicopter digits coming from this massive uh, fire hose of, uh, of, of digital currency. But um, yeah, Netflix, HBO, Amazon, they're all built around debt financing. So they're all dependent upon the system. So our story reveals the largest criminal conspiracy of lies and cover-up that this story reveals. And it's our system. That's the point. You make a claim at the beginning of the docuseries that I thought was really interesting, which is you said that the story we normally hear doesn't answer the question. So it, it's not enough to blame. It's not right to blame home buyers. And then there's like other sides of the media story that are not right either, like the big short movies. Like that's not full either. Is that what you're naming right here? The big short's a thumbnail. Um, in their in their dance to try to make humorous, complicated financial subjects, they ultimately blame the victim. Mm. The whole system suckered them into this thing because everybody got a, everybody got paid fees by suckering the most uh, non sophisticated borrowers in history. That was the whole business model. So the idea is, well, wait a second, why would they do that? <laughs> well, you have to watch the con to see. But trust me, it was based on deception. And mm. crimes every step of the way involving millions of people. And guess what, guys? If what? you're in Orange County, all great frauds start in Orange County. So <laughs> when I was when I was watching episode one, and by the way, I reject that. I reject that. It's the truth. And uh, and it goes up to Provo. It goes Orange County into Provo. Those are the I'll t- take that. <laughs> I will take that. That's gotta bank. be true. To the fraudulent bank, I will take that. If we find the answers in the con and we see that there's this this group of people, five or ten or fifty or a hundred, what are we what are we gonna do then? Like are, we, are they just gonna take us to the bank? You tell me. Well, you tell me. <laughs> As a man of faith and of love and liberty and 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 honest, genuine, beautiful humanity. That's who you are to me. I know who you are. Mm-hmm. So what is God gonna judge? Based on a, 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 a tapestry of deception, my friend. Hmm. Well, let's ask the reverend. What would God say? 
Well, I, I thought it was interesting that you mentioned like, what is the judgment of God? Because when we talk about like revelations or like the end of the Bible and like the judgment of the world, people have lots of weird notions about it. But if you read the language, the thing that God is judging is primarily an economy or a, a financial system. And that's actually what takes the ire of God's judgment in the end is this economy that ruined the world, that mechanized the systems, that dehumanized people, that used the world and sped it up. And all of a sudden the end of the judgment is like these merchants who are like, oh shit, where's the money? Wow, you know, that you just you just described the world we live in. Yeah. <laughs> Except the merchants aren't the ones that have access to the money. It's the financiers in our country. Yep. Everybody plays a role in this one, guys. Look around. All you have to do is just look at who's in power. And, and it, it, are they women, men, white, black? If you're in power, you're playing by these rules right now. Okay? Mm-hmm. Honestly. Let me tell you what I'm hearing from you because – the smart guys in the room, you guys are having a conversation or a monologue or a dialogue that, that I'm going to tell you what I'm picking up. You're telling me that um, the people who are in power are the people who have the money. And those people who have the money are socking it to us. And really, it's, it's been a uh, revelation of the end of the world. And here we are. I can get behind that. <laughs> our, our protagonist is a woman. It's just really um through her tragedy um shined a light on our truth to 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 reveal everything that we're talking about so she was a 91 year old african-american widow she lived in her home for over four decades she owned the home she and her husband were part of the um black migration from the south the agrarian south during jim crow to the industrialized midwest right after world war ii Uh, they worked like crazy well her husband robert uh, two jobs in the factory plants. He made enough money, even though we know that he was probably, um, you know, exploited in a big way. But he saved his money. He buys this home. It's they finally these people who have been living with, you know, uh, subjugation and, and and racism and all of those types of things for, you know, hundreds of years in the United States uh, finally get a slice of the American dream. So fast forward four decades, and we're now um, after her husband passes away. She's living off of a um, pension, you know, whatever type of um, retirement they had. And she has a very specific um, amount of income that she lives off of. But the house, of course, in that process over the years is, is starting to wither, right? So at this time, unbeknownst to Addie, there were brokers that were literally charged to find people like Addie, a widow who owned her own home that had to get maintenance done on the house because the way the counties and the cities were doing it at that time, if you lived in a specific zip code, they knew in the registry of deeds who had houses that needed their you know, porches fixed, their roofs fixed, leaks fixed, whatever. And if these people didn't get those uh, uh, problems fixed with their house, they would be fined by the city. So lo and behold, here comes this broker who comes up and says, hey, I've got an answer for you. I can, do you know your, your money, your house is worth this much more than what you actually paid for it? Because you've been in here, you can use your house to pay yourself back because at that time there was no increase in people's income, particularly elderly, you know, women that were widows. And they basically targeted them to get into these loans. These were predatory loans. They were written with 50 page documents that had all sorts of insane deception, adjustable rates, inflating income that were meant to get people to have to refinance. So they would create rolling loans. And why would they do that? Because 
a rolling loan knows no loss. And every time somebody rewrites a loan to a person like that, they get a fee. Addie or somebody would get, you know, the new loan. But every time she's banking her house that she owned into a casino that she doesn't know exists, and then they're setting up for failure. She's not getting the payouts. Right. Now, one thing leads to another. She falls behind on her payments, supposedly. She gets notices of uh, foreclosure. She tells the um, sheriff's office, I own my home. I don't understand what's happening. They ignore her. They come to evict her. Instead of face homeless at the homelessness at the age of 91, she picks up her husband's pestle. She points it at herself and she shoots herself four times in the chest. There were five casings, but she shot herself four times in the chest. She didn't die right away. Oh my gosh. And so I think most of us might be listening to this and thinking, well, you know, it's a horrible tragedy and I feel terrible for it, but she also got into a loan and she should have known what she was getting into. I think a lot of people would think that, you know, right. doesn't matter if she owned her house, circumstances changed, she made a free choice based on a loan. And okay, right. well, there's also simultaneously going on at this time period, um, a really hideous enterprise known as straw buying. Buyers could manufacture documents based on other people's income, get loans in other people's names with the other person not knowing it, in this case, Addie, steal the equity in their house, and then leave them with 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 this toxic mess that they couldn't get out of. That's actually what happened. That's what happened to Addie. That's terrible. Is this why we should watch the con, Patrick? Well, I think if you want to prevent uh, the end of the world, like Jonathan had um, just panned out, um, it, it's your duty, honestly, to get yourself informed to the world you actually live in. Because every single one of us are a target of this in one form or another. Oh, yeah. Halfway through the second episode, I was wondering about my loan. Is my loan actually real? <laughs> is, is Who picked up the loan? Who's servicing the loan? Where are my payments going? Do my signatures look like mine? You're asking oh, yeah. all the right questions. And you should find that out, quite frankly. I think, I, I think everyone should watch this film or the docuseries. Yeah. If her story is not enough to get you in, then there's all of the other elements that reveal this huge enterprise, which is fascinating. <laughs> but what it reveals is that what we were talking about before, absolute power corrupts absolutely. Is there, I mean, I don't want to give away anything, but is there anything that um, we should be learning from 2008 as we suffer from some new financial stresses today? Guys, it's the same thing. That's the whole point. So if you know a drug addict, right, and this guy is out of his mind loony and there's no consequences, and then you give him not only more cocaine, but you give him more money to buy more cocaine, is he going to stop? That's the system you live in. So we've got this binger society with a bunch of crooks up top that have got all, all, all the bad guys are in control, man. I love you, Patrick. I, I, you're just, <laughs> that's the system we live in. It is. It is. I know I make fun. So let me take it one more step further. So everything that I just told you just played out exactly the way it did in 2008 and 2019. Exactly. Mm-hmm. The exact same thing happened in the commercial market. And there was a run of $7 trillion in what we call repo markets. The whole global system would have collapsed if it was the same global system of 2008. But what they figured out since 2008 was nobody knows how the system works. 
So bring in the Fed. They'll give us all the money we want and there won't be any runs. And then we had COVID and that just papered over the rest of it. So I think we're up to $11 trillion in this bailout, which is still half the size of what we did in 2008. So what do we do? What can we do about it? Well, listen to me first and foremost. <laughs> I've been listening. Listen to me in your heart and soul, America. You, you, you have to make a choice. You have to make a choice. Do you believe in liberty and justice for all? Do you believe in the integrity of law? Is that something you will fight and die for and go to your grave with? Or do you want to stick your head in the sand, pretend like it's other, somebody else's problem until it's your problem? That's mm. the way we live in. I wrote a poem not long ago, and I'm not going to quote myself specifically, uh, Christian, but here's the gist of it, right? As long as you can procreate and eat, that's really what most people want to do. And they'll click to the next screen and they'll buy whatever they can until they can't, until it all comes down on their head. And when there's nowhere to run, who are they going to reach out to? Not me. Because what I'm telling you now is if you believe in freedom, justice, and the ideals of this country, you got to live them. You can't pretend to believe in freedom and justice for all and then go point your finger at some black guy kneeling on the side because you think he's the threat. No, the threat is this system that's making you work two jobs apiece where you'll never get ahead and then they're going to put you into some sort of meat grinder financialization on your home that you think you're going to walk away with money, but most likely you won't. That's what we've come to. It's not free markets, guys. It's not integrity of the system. It's not life and liberty and justice for all. And it's not uh, equality of law. What it is is what we said at the very beginning, Jonathan, which is um, power corrupts absolutely. And you know what God says about that. That's exactly right. That's very. That's. I could imagine what he says about that. <laughs> I think it's very beautifully said, Patrick. I like that a lot. Patrick, this has been really fun. Where can we see the con? The easiest thing to do right now is go to www.thecon.tv. We're, we're going to leave up um, the pilot episode for free, followed by the panel discussion that we did live last night, which was very exciting. And I encourage everybody to watch that panel discussion because some huge news came out of that. Um, and that's going to be available on the website that I just mentioned. Again, www.thecon.tv. And you can also find us on the con. Um, uh, YouTube page where that will also be broadcast for free at any time you want to watch it. And then we'll also have uh, on our Facebook, the con series, I think they'll be available there as well. Now, starting tomorrow, the entire series is going to be uh, available in what we call virtual cinemas around the United States. So imagine your favorite independent movie house that's in Southern California. Um, you know, for me, I used to go to Hollywood sunset strip to the Lindley. We're going to be broadcast on Lumley's uh, websites as well as all of the uh, independent cinemas throughout the United States, Chicago, New York, San Francisco, Miami. Anybody can access it anywhere. You can download the entire series from there. That'll be available for a full month. And then we'll see what happens next. Mm -hmm. And I hope that we reach 10 million people by November because that's how many people need to see it to even make an impact in this problem that we're talking about. I hope so mm -hmm. too, Patrick. It's been really good. I can't wait to watch the, ne the next three episodes. Johnny, last words. Christian, I don't know that I have anything else to say that I don't want to take away from the moment that we just had with Patrick as he wrapped it up. I think that's exactly right. I do have one more thing I want to say. Every interview I've seen you in recently, since the movie, and right before the, the docuseries, you've been in bow ties and all fancy looking, and here you go. <laughs> You're the Patrick I know. What, what, what are you doing? Well, I, I just figured, because we've edited so much together and been side by side, this is going to be a little bit more comfortable. Look, I just got to say this in front of Jonathan and the world, that I have just the most 
respect for Christian. He is mm-hmm. a, a genius of life. He is such an, a, a poet. He's a poet and everything he's done and grown. And, and I'm just so proud to be your friend. And I'm so grateful to be a part of both of your podcasts. Mm-hmm. I, I hope we covered it well. Just remember this, guys. Look, the con is about the law, honestly. And you'll find that it, it doesn't matter what political ideology you describe to you. You either believe the law or you don't. And the law is not mm-hmm. meant to come on, on the other. It's fairness. Right, it's justice. That's the idea of our law, versus it being fascism. If that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Well, thank you for joining us, Patrick. That ends our third episode of Smart Guy, Dumb Guy. Come back again next week. I know this was a little extra long, but this was worth it. Every Monday, you can check out a new episode. If you want to know more about the con, just like Patrick said, go to thecon.tv. If you want to find out about the almost Dr. Johnny Morrison, go to johnnyis.com or myself at christiansurge.com. Take care, everybody. See you next time. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Patrick. You have been listening to a Smart Guy and a Dumb Guy production, a podcast exploring culture, current events, and politics from both sides of the intellectual spectrum. See you next time.